A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here am I. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up and out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you should call me from generation to generation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, starting with verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. A reading from the gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed on the third day, be raised. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or what can one give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay all according to his conduct. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. It's good to be with you all this morning. So glad you're here on this Labor Day weekend. We've got a lot going on in our world, and I hope that Many of you do have the day off tomorrow, and it's a time of rest for you. I know this is a season of change for many of us. So some are getting into new school patterns or work rhythms. Uh, Some are going through all kinds of different change. And so sometimes when you have all of that at once, (laughs) right at the beginning of the year, it can be nice to just at least take a day and take a breath. And um, so today our readings that we have lead us to a place of disorientation like a change, upending. And it's crucial for Christians to remember that the call to discipleship isn't something we just like can fit nice and easy into a normal American life. (laughs) Our values as Christians are different. Our pursuits are different. Our worship is shaped differently. And that means that as we step deeper into the way of faith, our lives will begin to change. So we see this, uh, particularly this disorientation with Moses in our Old Testament reading. So our reading opens with what appears to be like an ordinary work day for Moses. He's at his new home in Midian. He is shepherding. He's working for his father-in-law, whose name is Jethro. And Moses is this really interesting character because he wrestles with three different identities. He's got like three different backgrounds that he's working with. He was born a Hebrew, part of God's people. And then he was adopted 
by, so there's this people, the, the Hebrew people who are enslaved in Egypt, and then he's adopted and raised by the Egyptians who are the enslavers. Okay, so already you've got this tension in his life. And then he sees that up close, he sees the oppression that his people are under. Now he's escaped to Midian, and he's married, and he's settled down, and he's taken on a third identity as a Midianite shepherd. So he's got all three of these things, and you can only imagine with Moses that he's wrestling with, okay, who am I? Where do I come from? What is my background? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. Yes, that's my identity. Okay, but also I was raised in Egyptian. That's the language that I speak and the culture I'm most familiar with. But now I'm here in Midian and my wife is Midianite and you know all these kind of things are going on in his brain, we can imagine. There's unrest. And so then the picture here is he's tending sheep alone in the desert. And I picture him with all these questions. Who am I? What am I doing? What am I supposed to do? What was I supposed to do? Now, remember why Moses ran away from Egypt in the first place. That he was angry because he saw a fellow Israelite being abused. So Moses then, in response, killed the Egyptian guard. So we can imagine it was then shame and fear that led him to the desert in the first place. Now, think about in your life, the path, you know, we all have things we look back on and we regret, we feel bad about. Sometimes those things actually shape who we are. We begin to have narratives. So many of them are not true in our brain about who we are because of those past mistakes. And so the tendency often that we do is we feel ashamed and we hide and we run away. As Moses wanders tending his sheep in the midst of all of this, what we can imagine is chaos in his brain, what he's experiencing, God shows up. Now, the Bible always paints this picture of the God who is ever near, who is always drawing close to his people. But notice, God shows up, but God's presence is not really comforting to Moses. <laughs> Don't we often expect God to just be always comforting all the time? Of course, God is comforting. You guys hear that from me all the time. God's presence is comforting, but not always. <laughs> Sometimes God, God's presence, often God's presence is disorienting. We could even talk about how even God's comfort is disorienting, but we won't go down that road today. But we often want God to just calm us, just make everything sweet and better. There's a reason why Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the masses, because we often treat it as an opiate. We think the purpose of religion is just be soothing all the time. But our God is disorienting. Yes, our God is always healing us, but it's not always comfortable. And that's what Moses is experiencing here. There's a, so, so Moses is already experiencing disorientation in his life. Who am I? I'm wandering in the desert. And then the response to that is more disorientation. <laughs> okay, here's a bush that is on fire, but it won't burn up. And then there's a message from God. Moses is told to keep a distance. There's a mixed message here. Come near, but take your shoes off. Don't come too close. <laughs> Why? Because this is holy ground, the voice says. The word holy just means like set apart or different. This ground that you're standing on, Moses, is different from the other ground that you walk on. This ordinary bush that is on fire is sacred space. This is a heaven meet earth moment. So the command to Moses is something like draw close and also understand that thing to which you are drawing close is beyond anything you've ever experienced before and it will change you it will challenge you it will do it, it will change everything for you i can't help but think about 
this as the posture and the way we approach the sacrament of the Eucharist, Holy Communion every week. You've heard this over and over again that we say, you are all welcome. All are welcome. All are loved. All are invited. And there is no but at the end of that sentence. Everyone is welcome. And know that as you draw close, this will change you. This is powerful. Our God is the one who embraces us and loves us fully. And that love is so powerful, it shapes whoever comes close. God's presence will mean that the neat categories we've established in our lives get disrupted. They get disoriented. They get upended because God has something better for us. Okay, so God identifies God's self to Moses as the God of your father. God has been involved with Moses' family. And God is more specific by saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means God has heard the cry of his people and their descendants. That cry has reached God and God has come to them. So they are his people. God has a responsibility to his people and he responds. He responds to them. He's committed himself to them. Now, of course, we know God is not only concerned with his people. From the very beginning, we've seen God's desire is his presence to flood the entire earth. All people are welcomed in. All people are invited. But somehow in the Bible, one of the ways we see God works is he chooses a specific people for the sake of the world. This always seems to be how God works. There's a very specific, narrow community that God chooses and then says, bless the entire world. Israel is a community of blessing. And God's promise to them um, and to the world will be fulfilled because God is faithful. So Moses' first reaction to God's calling is like, what? Me? Now, God, he doesn't believe that he has the talent, the experience to be able to do what God has called him to do. But God makes it clear that Moses is not being called based on his experience in the palace. This isn't because, hey, you'd be good because you used to be there in Egypt. No, it's not because of his initiative because Moses has just really stepped up and been creative. It's not because of his leadership potential. No, Moses' role in this whole thing is subordinate. <laughs> He's not the main character in the story. God himself is the main character in the story. God is the one who will be doing the saving. In fact, that one time that Moses tried to bring about deliverance on his own was when he killed that Egyptian guard. He was trying to take it into his own hands in revenge, in seeking justice through violence. Moses said, here's how I'm going to fix this in the moment. But God says, I'm going to rescue my people. Moses, it's not up to you. Your job is to trust me. Moses has to trust, and we have to trust, that God loves his people more than even Moses loves his people. Even we love other people. God loves them more. And God says to Moses, I will be with you. Now, he's not saying, Moses, you're always going to feel my presence. No, it's a reminder God is working whether he feels it or not. Now, as you can imagine, Moses has questions. <laughs> um, what is he going to tell the people about this God? Who is this God? God says, I am who I am. Which, of course, that clears it up, right? <laughs> he says, 
Further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now today, like if you talk to somebody, you're introducing yourself to somebody, you may say, I am, but you fill it in with something, right? I introduced myself to some of you today. I'll say, I am Preston. That's my name. You might also say, depending on who you are for me, it would be, I am a husband, I'm a father, I'm a priest. We're saying, you can define me by this. <laughs> These are some ways you can identify me, some markers that you can put on me. But when God introduces God's self, there's no fill in the blank. There's no blank there to be filled in because he's not dependent on anything. He is before everything. So any box that we try to put God in, he, can't, he doesn't fit in that box. And at the same time, it's a way of saying, I am consistent. I'm the same God that called your ancestors. I'm the same God who is present with you now, and I will be that God who delivers my people. Now, God has already used that verb in telling Moses, I will be with you. That's the same, I will, I am here. So what kind of God is he? He is the God who will be there, who will be with them. He will be whatever is necessary to be in the different context that to achieve the purpose announced to the ancestors. This God wears no label. This is the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In our epistle reading today, um, Paul calls the church to practice hospitality, which is also a moment of disorientation. All the things that you've learned, all the things that you've heard, we're called to live differently because of who God is. My friend, uh, Father David Harvey, he's a pastor in Calgary, and he's also a biblical scholar of the New Testament. And he pointed out to a few of us this week that the word for hospitality in Greek is philozenia, which is, it means love of stranger, which is the opposite of xenophobia, which is fear of stranger. Those are opposite things. So the church is called to be a hospitable people in a way that is often uncomfortable. Now, Paul continues with a specific focus on specifically, how do you respond to people that hurt you? Like what happens? Because that, that happens, right? People hurt you. And he says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, if you've been alive for more than five minutes, you know that it's not always possible <laughs> to live at peace with everyone. That's why he says it that way. But the point is, as Christians, we've got to do our part towards peace. And this is good because it assumes the necessity of boundary setting. Okay? So sometimes there's a fence in our lives that does not allow for the same kind of relationship as before. So if someone hurts you in a significant and deep way, what Paul is not saying here is just go about like it never happened. No, often it's necessary in families, in relationships, to say, no, our relationship can't be the same. And that response is loving. Because it says, I can't have that same kind of relationship, but God will still love you even though I can't in the same way. But what we do, what we can do always, is release the need for vengeance. The Christian calling is, Paul says, to feed and provide water for your enemy who is in need. And Paul says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a complete disorientation because we want to. When we get hurt, we want to get back at people for the wrongs they did to us. We want to fix the world through anger and domination. That feels good. 
The passage says, Christians, we've got to find a different way of dealing with that need for justice that stirs in us. And that need for justice is good. The, the longing for justice and rightness is good. So Paul's not telling the church to ignore evil or act like it's not evil. Evil is very real. So why are we not to avenge evil? Because God has already dealt with it on the cross. Evil has been exhausted. A new world has been opened up. So in quoting Proverbs 25, Paul says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. He's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? Aren't we supposed to love our enemies? So why would we want to heap burning coals upon their head? Like, doesn't Jesus' command to love enemies and then the desire, because sometimes this is interpreted throughout history as people going, so if you're kind to them, it's going to ultimately really get them. And at the end, they're going to be super judged. So be nice to them because they're going to be super judged. Well, St. Augustine looked at this and said, that can't be what Paul meant. <laughs> and so, so he said this. He suggested that the coals, and this has precedent in an Egyptian practice at the time of Paul, but, or at the time of Proverbs, actually, that the coals have a purifying effect. He says this, for the coals of fire serve to burn, i.e. to bring anguish to his spirit, which is like the head of the soul in which all malice is burnt out when one is changed for the better through repentance. So somehow love and kindness and goodness has this purifying effect in the people who we're loving towards, even when they've offended us. When we're hurt, forgiveness in our lives is the only thing we can do that allows for a different outcome. So when you get hurt by somebody, you can't, you can't just go and fix them. It just doesn't work. You can't do that. The only thing you can do that changes the outcome is forgiveness. One of the things that you'll notice as you follow Jesus is we have this different instinct that rises up. So there is always still that instinct we fight with for revenge. That's always still there. We always <laughs> that thing we've got to kind of resist. But there's another instinct that emerges as Christ followers, and that's the instinct to forgive. In our gospel reading, we hear Jesus um, saying some really hard words to the disciples. If you remember last week, we read the passage right before this where Peter declares, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter, excuse me, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. And after this declaration, Jesus says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. So in the disciples' minds, when we pick it up here, they're like, let's go. Like, he is the Messiah. They're going to build the, the church on me. Like, this is going to be awesome. So their thought is, let's gather a, uh, an army. <laughs> let's go get ready to go get the throne. Let's go do this because Jesus is the Messiah, and we've got this new kingdom that's coming. But Jesus has something really different in mind. He will go to Jerusalem. And though he will confront the rulers, he's going to look like a failure to the watching world. Jesus tells his disciples he must die and be raised. And Peter does not like that at all. He's like, wait, you're going to die? No way. Now, that's a paraphrase to, to this. But, but Peter rebukes Jesus. Like Moses resisting God's plan at the burning bush, saying, me? No, no. Like the reflex with that Paul knows will struggle with towards revenge, Peter insists, no, that can't be what happens. Suffering and death 
are not supposed to take place. They won't take place on my watch. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. That's not the script. That's not how Peter thinks things are supposed to go. So Jesus responds by saying, get behind me, Satan. Now, he just called Peter the rock on which he will build his church. And then he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, he's not calling Peter Satan. That's what some people say. He's not saying Peter is Satan. You could build a whole warped thing on that. No, Peter has just been called the rock. His name has just been changed. He's just been given the name Peter, which means rock. But he, Jesus does say he is in this moment, he's being a stumbling block. Like Peter, we often want a victorious Messiah, but not one who suffers. We want to shortcut pain and sacrifice. We want to run away from the storms. But Jesus says this reflex that we have to fix it, this reflex that we have to have a Christ who doesn't suffer, it's actually satanic. This means the disciples need this massive change, this massive reorientation. Here's the truth. The church in the world is often both. We are the rock, and we're also can, can act like a stumbling block. Religion is really powerful. When we trust God, when we recognize the power to heal, to form rightly and restore and restore, when we listen to our when we listen to God and we allow God to take the lead, there is such beautiful things that come out of the church. So amazing. But when we listen to ourselves and we ignore who we are, this can so quickly, religion can so quickly get twisted and have the power to hurt and do deep hurt. Now, lately, there have been a lot of documentaries and podcasts about churches who have hurt people. That's just in the air right now. Now, that's nothing new. I mean, every generation has wrestled with this. When I was really little, it was the time of um, prosperity preachers who came out with scandals, all kinds of different scandals at the time. And I remember at that point, there was deep cynicism about religion in general. And now we kind of have this different wave that's manifested itself differently. But religion can do really deep hurt. And the church is full of sinners, full of broken people. The good news, and the good news we have to proclaim and remember and hold on to, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need his rescue. But it means laying down our perceived notions of what life ought to be, laying down the paths we would often choose for ourselves. When Jesus says to lose your, lose your life, he uses this word for life, for uh, suke or psyche. And it's used over and over again in these few verses. Sometimes it's translated life. Sometimes it's translated soul. And it's this rich concept. We don't have like one English word that's an equivalent translation for this word. Eugene Peterson translates the term your true self. So Jesus is saying, here's how you can find your truest self, who you really are, by giving it up. Jesus' message to his disciples is so counterintuitive, so upside down, and it's literally the opposite of what they expected. But it's consistent with what he's taught all along. At this point in Matthew's gospel, Peter has confessed that the disciples believe Jesus is not just a prophet, he's God's anointed king, he's the Messiah. And if that's the case, then they need to plan a strategy. They need to bring up arms and get a, a military together. But Jesus' vision here is like a mirror image of that. 
It's like a parallel universe of the disciples' expectation. Yes, he's going to go to Jerusalem, but he's not going to build an army and grab a throne. It's not going to look like winning a battle. This call to follow Jesus, to lay down our life, is echoed throughout the centuries, and we can't do it halfway. It's to let go of our expectations and to find life on the other side. Jesus has talked about the kingdom as a plant a whole lot. In the Gospels, you'll notice that that's all all over the place. It's always about seeds and planting and stuff. There's this idea that as we plant our lives in the ground, as we surrender who we are, God takes our faults and our failures and our strengths and our joys and he uses them in a way that we never would, have been, never would have expected. Sometimes we look at our lives and we go, that's nothing. What I'm doing is nothing. Or like, it's just like a little seed. That can't do anything. That can't be anything. And yet when we submit our hearts to Christ, he invites us towards something altogether unexpected. But it's going to look way different from the ways of the world. There's this great book, if you haven't read it, it's a novel actually written for young adults, but it's called A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. And in this book, uh, the main character, Meg, her brother is named Charles Wallace. And he's been overcome in this story by the it of the universe, which is like the Satan character. And because he's been so transformed by this it, this satanic character, he, he keeps hitting his sister with lies. He just tells her lie over and over and over again. So our father abandoned us. No one ever loved you, Meg. Everybody thinks you're odd. You'll never be accepted by anyone. He just keeps hitting her with these lies. Well, Meg had been told by the missus, which is this kind of angelic character in the story, that she's the only one who could actually rescue Charles Wallace. The reason is because the missus told her that she has something that the it does not have. There's something in her that she has that the it doesn't have. So what she does is she searches her brain. She's like, what What is it? What could it possibly be? Is it this skill or is it this talent? Like, what is the thing that I possibly have? How can I be the one to save Charles Wallace? Like, what is that thing I have that the it doesn't have? The it is so powerful. How could it be me? And then at the end, she realizes that thing she has is love and love for him. So while he's slinging these lies and insults to her, she responds with, I love you. Charles Wallace, you are my darling and my dear and the light of my life and the treasure of my heart. I love you, I love you, I love you. And Charles is ultimately released from the grip of these lies of the enemy because of the power of sacrificial love. Now, I wonder today if you've ever been on the receiving end of that kind of love. The love that doesn't want anything from you, that is giving, self-giving, the love that demolishes the lies in your life. That is the love that God has for us and the love that we're called into. And our calling is to frame our lives from Jesus's alternate universe, rather than from our own experience. These words are important. Cling on to your life and you will lose it. Give everything you've got to following Jesus, including life itself, and you will win it. When we face things that are disorienting in our lives, the temptation is to try to avoid that sense of disorientation. 
to avoid the pain altogether. So some of the things we do is we numb our pain with substances that may make us feel better temporarily, but they don't actually do anything to help us. Or sometimes, maybe even more often, we just pretend. Yeah, I'm not hurting. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. We refuse to feel our feelings, or we blame ourselves, or we blame others for being stuck. One of the leading scholars in the field of grief is this guy named David Kessler. You guys have probably heard of the five stages of grief. Well, he wrote a book. He studied with the woman who designed the five stages of grief. And he wrote a book on the sixth stage of grief, which is about finding meaning. And he says the first thing when you're dealing with disorientation, or in his case, grief, first thing you have to do is really feel your feelings. And he gives this illustration of buffaloes. He says buffaloes, when a storm comes, the buffaloes don't run away, all right? They run into the storm, which from the outside looks just silly. <laughs> like, why would you run into the storm? But it's because they instinctively know that the quickest way through the storm is through it, right? Just to go through it. So when you try to avoid it, run from it, suffer pain, it doesn't get dealt with. And as you feel those feelings, the intensity and frequency will change. Things will shift. So some of us today, say this as we end, some of us may feel like Moses at the beginning of the reading. Who am I? We're often afraid, insecure, struggling with issues of identity, of where do I fit? Who am I in the broader world? I talk to a lot of people in my line of work, and some people I talk to are paralyzed right now by the big issues of the world. So we have some really big issues going on in our world, and sometimes it can just be so scary that that just paralyzes us. And still others will say, I can't even worry about the headlines right now because i got enough going on in my household. Like, that's what I'm struggling with. Moses is called in the midst of that disorientation to trust. And the good news for him is the good news for us too. God is with you. He cares about you and he cares about the oppression of the world. He is who he is, and he is whatever is needed in a given situation. You can't fill in the blanks with him because he's bigger than definition. And yet because of his great love for his people, he hears our cry and he'll give us what we need. It's often said that helping is healing. God often allows our care for the needs of others to be part of our own healing process. It gives us perspective, allowing us to see the world differently. Um, in this season, we're preparing in Nashville to elect a mayor and people to our city council. And there's this tendency so often, and I've talked to so many people and it seems like it, that, that, that the world rises and falls on, this thing, on these things. That whoever's elected, that's really what's going to determine the whole future of the world. And everything in the world hinges on that. And I'm not saying it's unimportant. I mean, when I vote, I try to vote not with myself in mind, but with the most vulnerable people in our city in mind, because I know that's who's most affected by elections. So I'm not saying it's unimportant. But ultimately, the church throughout history has had to remember, and it's been challenged to know, our faith is not dependent or centered on who the emperor is, or on who the governor is, or who the tribal elders are. We're the people of God. And that stuff doesn't define us. We all, like Peter, want Jesus to live up to our expectations. We want the victory, and we want to shortcut suffering and sacrifice, and we want to control the outcome. 
And yet Christ's suffering is at the heart of the gospel. So we don't need to be afraid of disorientation, of loss, of weakness, because saving and finding are in the losing. It is only in losing our lives, our expectations, our plans, our other identities that we truly find them. Amen.